For over 80 years, Pontiac was an icon in the American automotive industry, with fleets that, over the years, were simultaneously niche and widespread. It's kind of a strange thing, really. I've spoken before about the emergent car culture of the mid-20th century, and how it shaped what car culture eventually became. And Pontiac was instrumental in that development because it represented a quintessentially American approach to mass market appeal. Sure, you reach out with cars for a particular segment, but for the most part, you're trying to have your hand in every jar, throwing anything at the wall to see what sticks. And for all its misses, Pontiac had plenty of hits. Plenty of cars that endure in the public consciousness and automotive rhetoric today. It's seen so much history as a brand, from the rise of muscle cars to the decline of the big three in the late 70s into the early 80s, and the recession of the decade's later years, all the way through to the second automotive bailout in the late 2000s. Its beginnings were humble for a footprint so large, and yet here we are, talking about them today. And it's hard to imagine car culture without Pontiac, the good and the bad. Because, for better or worse, it occupied that middle ground between what people wanted and what they could afford. Pontiac went through any number of changes throughout its time as a household name. Because it was a household name. It was absolutely prolific. A brand of immense highs and cratering lows. Of diehard brand loyalty and mass market and corporate abandonment. But at the end of the day, it's all part of painting a picture of what Pontiac meant to American car culture. The Firebird, the GTO, the Fiero, the Tempest, the Grand Prix, the Grand Am, the Bonneville, the Aztec, the Vibe, the G6, the G8. Not all of it was good, but most of it was memorable. And really, that's what this story is about. How Pontiac came to be what it was how it came to mean what it meant, and how it came to end as it did. This is the life and death of Pontiac. The tale of Pontiac begins in the 19th century in Pontiac, Michigan, because, of course it did. Edward Murphy, not that Eddie Murphy, founded the Pontiac Buggy Company in 1893, selling horse-drawn carriages and buggies. A fine endeavor, but nothing all that cutting edge. In fact, while the business did well enough to stick around for over a decade, it would take 13 years before Murphy would meet the man who'd kick his business to the next level. You see, in 1906, Murphy met a man by the name of Allenson Brush, a Cadillac designer turned engineering consultant based out of Detroit. At the time, Brush was fresh off having his proposal for a two-cylinder Cadillac rejected. But Murphy, who wanted to grow his business beyond horses, believed in Brush's idea. At the time, Murphy's horse-drawn vehicles bore the name Oakland, and he decided that the brand name would stick for this form of motorized transport. All the men had to do was put the plans in motion and get this two-cylinder off the page and onto the road. Easier said than done, of course, but again, here we are. Summer 1907 was when Edward Murphy created the Oakland Motor Car Company with the hopes of taking Brush's two-cylinder counterclockwise rotating engine and making it the wave of the future. 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 However, the problem in this approach is that, well, 
Cadillac wasn't exactly wrong to reject Brush's engine. They had their ear to the ground and figured it wouldn't sell, and the eventual production of that engine and its subsequently lackluster performance proved Cadillac right. It was a significant blow to the business interests of Brush and Murphy, whose Oakland Motor Car Company was already in dire straits. Now, this is typically where partnerships dissolve, and both men go back to doing whatever it was they were doing before, without risking any more than they had to in order to get by. Because hey, it was the early 20th century, and while the future titans of industry were making their bones out there in those mean streets, it wasn't exactly written in the stars for every would-be entrepreneur. I mean, it still isn't today. But still... Hard work counts for a lot, but hard work doesn't always guarantee success. Of course, with that being said, when you pair hard work with a dash of luck, you might find yourself with a leg up over the competition. Case in point, a series of falling dominoes that led to Brush and Murphy's fortunes turning around. Let me elaborate. Businessman William C. Durant had become a success story in those burgeoning days of 20th century industry having founded General Motors while based out of Flint, Michigan. Back then, GM was little more than a holding company for Buick. But it didn't take long for GM to absorb other automotive companies, such as Brush's former boss, Cadillac. During this period, Murphy and Brush remained together at Oakland Motor Car Company with plans to introduce a four-cylinder, 40-horsepower car with a sliding gear transmission. Unlike the two-cylinder motor, Brush and Murphy's new car was a success beyond anything they had actually produced before, so much so that they landed on Durant's radar. Before long, plans were put into place for Oakland to be acquired by GM in 1909. But this was a bit of a good news bad news situation. Yes, Brush and Murphy's car was a hit, and they were in line to become notable businessmen themselves with this acquisition. But unfortunately, Murphy didn't live to see the buyout, as he died from a stroke in 1908 at the young age of 44. It was a sudden and tragic end to a man who set the wheels in motion for the creation of one of the most iconic brands in American automotive history. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing the hyperbole thing, but I still don't feel like that's far off. In the years to come, Oakland would become a household name under GM. Well, a household name beyond just being a place in California. Or Alabama, or Florida, or Nova Scotia, or Pennsylvania, but whatever, you get the point. It's just a shame that Murphy never got to truly witness the fruits of all his labor. But life is just like that sometimes. Under GM, Oakland vehicles were situated at a price point above Chevrolet, but below virtually every other model in their wheelhouse. However, this proved to be a good thing, because it made Oakland vehicles more accessible to the average consumer, who was just getting the hang of this whole driving thing. A V8 engine hit the market in 1916, with production hitting 35,000 units in 1917. But it wasn't an entirely upward trajectory. Oakland was averaging sales of around 52,000 units in 1919, which was good enough to rank them sixth in the United States in overall sales. But quality control issues soon led to their cars getting a bit of a bad rep for build quality. Granted, this is long before the era of message boards and auto blogs, where the failings of a car spread like too much butter on not enough bread. But word of mouth could be a fleet killer, especially if you didn't nip the issue in the bud long before it got out to the market at large. 
So what did GM do? Well, they did damage control, naturally. Particularly with keeping down on rush orders. Yeah, cars were selling hot and fast, but repopulating lots with new models would mean jack if haste led to a crappy end product. So to make a long story short, GM's general manager, Fred Hannum, helped sort out the production schedule to keep things running smoothly. Basically, he normalized the schedule so that they weren't rushing, but they also weren't dragging. And as I say that, I'm already shuddering at the vague notion of J.K. Simmons standing right behind me. Anyway, Oakland had its situation properly sorted, and by the 1920s, they had arguably their biggest success yet with the 1924 Oakland 654A 4-passenger coupe. Eesh, that's a mouthful. Otherwise known as the True Blue Oakland 6, due to the engine but also the paint job from DuPont subsidiary Duco. This paint resulted in a distinctive visual flair for the upstart vehicle, offering the kind of style befitting the Roaring Twenties, as it looked like a prettier version of something a bank robber might die in. You know, get that high-rolling, folk-hero aesthetic. Under the hood, the True Blue Oakland 6 offered an automatic spark advance, four-wheel disc brakes, and a brand new 177-cubic-inch L-head engine making 44 brake horsepower. Sales figures for the 654A jumped to 37,080 units, and Oakland's brand identity started to shift closer to the mid-upper tier of GM's offerings. Less common man, more luxury brand. Which sounds good in theory, but wasn't so great in practice, as it put a ceiling on what Oakland was capable of achieving. You see, the brand didn't have the sort of lead time in public perception that Cadillac, Buick, and Oldsmobile did, and it was no longer viewed as the affordable, sensible alternative that Chevrolet was, despite actually putting out a car called the Oakland Sensible 6. In a macro sense, Oakland was never going to overtake the top tier of GM's luxury offerings, so it's not surprising that the mid-twenties saw Oakland's gradual decline, which was concurrent with the rise of Pontiac, the GM brand named for a legendary Ottawa chieftain, who was also the namesake for the Michigan town in which the cars were produced. Originally introduced in 1926 to fill the gap Oakland had vacated as a middle ground between Chevrolet and Oldsmobile, Pontiac now replaced Oakland altogether, offering cars with six-cylinder engines that went for four-cylinder prices, with both coupe and sedan models being produced and unveiled at the New York Auto Show that year. Check out my RCR story on the history of the New York International Auto Show for more about its importance to automotive history, but enough plugs for now. As time rolled on, Pontiac was incorporating some of the Oakland implementations, such as four-wheel brakes and various engine sizes, among other aspects of GM's broader fleet. At the time, GM introduced a Pontiac Straight 6, along with additions such as independent front suspension, hydraulic brakes, synchromesh transmission, and the first column-mounted gear shifter, the idea being that one could drive for leisure rather than necessity. As a result, Pontiac took a more commanding presence in the market, with the $825 Straight 6 earning the moniker the Chief of the Sixes. By 1933... Oakland was deader than a 360 no-scoped dragon, as the brand fell into irrelevancy in the wake of slumping sales for mid-level and luxury cars. But even with Pontiac on the upswing, it didn't mean GM didn't still have issues they needed sorted. 
Enter Alfred P. Sloan, also known as the father of the modern corporation, who looked to unite the separate GM divisions to make for a more interconnected corporate structure. Under Sloan, the divisions were still allowed certain freedom at an engineering and design level, but in the grand scheme of things, his goal was similar to that of general manager Fred Hannum, to keep production running smoothly. Except taking it to the next logical step, to create product at a level commensurate with demand, while reducing expenses wherever possible. Because even though Pontiac was doing better than Oakland, it still wasn't performing at the level of a car brand with a long shelf life. Thus, Sloan put cross-divisional manufacturing practices into place at GM. In essence, brands were pulling from a shared pool of resources, cutting down on costs and production time. When the Great Depression hit, this is what helped keep Pontiac viable as the brand's manufacturing was merged with Chevrolets, with platforms, body styles, engines, and all sorts of things being used interchangeably. Because in GM's mind, the cost-cutting benefits of badge engineering outweighed the risks of inner-brand cannibalization. Of course, this would come back to bite them, but that's for a little later down the line. By this point, Pontiacs were utilizing three different bodies as part of the merging of production with other GM brands, there was the A body that they shared with Chevrolet, the B body split between Pontiac, Oldsmobile, and Buick, and the bigger Oldsmobile C body. Sure, it led to a lot of similar cars with different badging, and you could argue that the marketing costs were likely higher as a result of having to market each similar car separately. But hey, as long as the brands were still afloat, it seemed the cloudy distinction between them was low on the totem pole of concerns, especially during this time of nationwide economic strife. For a man like Sloan, who lived by the approach of, quote, a car for every pocketbook, Pontiac needed to be a brand that sat ideally between Chevrolet's most expensive model and Oldsmobile's least. It was pretty much a baller-on-a-budget brand, as you were getting something that looked cool, but at an entry-level price point. For instance, take the Pontiac Economy Straight 8 of the early 1930s, with the iconic stainless steel silver streak band that gave that Art Deco panache to match the smoother, more luxurious driving experience. Now, this was the period at which cars were starting to become more commonplace, and consumers were beginning to come to terms with what they wanted in a car. And not just that, either. They were coming to terms with what they expected in an automobile. People had work needs, luxury needs, even defense needs, as the nation entered the Second World War. For instance, by 1941, Pontiac was manufacturing anti-aircraft guns for the Navy, along with tank axles, cannons, and countless engine parts for military vehicles. The world was changing, and commerce along with it. But the automotive world was changing at an equally fast clip, as the mid-20th century gave us the birth of car culture, as we've all come to know and recognize. Not just for cars as status symbols, but as a passion unto themselves. Okay, so Pontiac was on the rise, and this is due in no small part to the efforts of our aforementioned GM head, Alfred P. Sloan. And this is important because, according to author James O'Toole in his book, Leading Change, Overcoming the Ideology of Comfort and the Tyranny of Custom, great title, Sloan ran a tight ship that privileged policies, systems, and structures over people, principles, and values. 
Now, you might be thinking, well, of course Sloan's values didn't value values. He's a businessman and a businessman in the paraphrased parlance of Jay-Z. But the problem is that the environment Sloan created resulted in workers who were scared to rock the boat. Sloan kept to a hard production schedule that included annual changes to the styling of vehicles, encouraging users to buy new, which then fed into his pricing structure that had Cadillac at peak expensiveness and Chevrolet in the most modest pricing range. With a car for every budget and every style, the notion was that none of GM's brands would be in direct competition with one another. But overworked, underappreciated employees were quick to unionize in the years prior to the war, staging a 44-day sit-down strike at GM plants in a bid for union recognition. Now, that was 1937. And although the Great Depression was in America's rearview mirror, it still very much informed the conditions of the workers at that time. Because... Well, it's not like the effects of the Great Depression were in the rearview mirror entirely. There was no love lost for the corporate American businessman, industrialists living high off the hog while their employees struggled to make ends meet. Sloan argued that the strikers were unlawfully holding his manufacturing plants hostage. This prompted Michigan Governor Frank Murphy to bring labor and management into direct negotiations to get everyone back to work. Easier said than done, of course, not that this did anything to amend Sloan's reputation as a corporate fat cat. From what I could find in his New York Times obituary from 1966, Sloan ended up in trouble with the Treasury just one month after the strike, when a congressional committee found that he failed to disclose nearly $2 million in income taxes over the course of three years. That roughly $1.9 million figure in 1937 comes out to over $33.5 million today. But Sloan's excuse was that he and his wife's income for 1936 mostly went to federal and state income taxes, and that they had split the roughly $1.7 million that remained, half for themselves and the rest to charity. So there were never any charges brought against Sloan, although this was a PR nightmare for the guy, which is why it's not that surprising that he made strides into philanthropy with the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Sloan himself would declare, Having been connected with industry during my entire life, it seems eminently proper that I should turn back, in part, the proceeds of that activity with the hope of promoting a broader, as well as a better, understanding of the economic principles and national policies which have characterized American enterprise down through the years. The move bought Sloan some goodwill, but even though GM was at the top of the food chain, World War II was on the horizon, and with it came substantial challenges, as the Second World War would essentially freeze production in the auto industry, so that by the time America entered the post-war years, there was a backlog of change to push through, which was about in line with Sloan's own predictions for the future of the auto industry. He would write in his memoir, My Years with General Motors, Eh, so-so title, but at least it's straightforward, that he expected remaining number one to be far more difficult than reaching that goal in the first place. There have been, and always will be, many opportunities to fail in the automobile industry. The circumstances of the ever-changing market and ever-changing product are capable of breaking any business organization, if that organization is unprepared for change. 
Indeed, in my opinion, if it has not provided procedures for anticipating change. In General Motors, these procedures are provided by the central management, which is in a position to appraise the broad, long-term trends of the market. As the industry has grown and evolved, we have adhered to this policy and have demonstrated an ability to meet competition and the shifts of customer demand. But Sloan's approach to corporate management clashed with that of sociologist Peter Drucker, who was given in-depth access to GM for a book he planned to write about corporate business. In writing and researching the book, which he eventually titled Concept of the Corporation, cool title, Drucker had nearly unrestricted access to GM facilities, even joining Alfred P. Sloan on business meetings. It was interesting to think of how ideologies differed, even in spite of the close contact between the two men. Drucker felt management was a more personal element of business, less about blindly following orders and more about collaboration. Although the book praises the management infrastructure Sloan created, which maintained a sense of autonomy among divisions and a continuous flow of information throughout, Drucker's suggestions to improve business were met with resistance. Sloan hated the concept of, quote, Federal decentralization, which suggested GM run its company as an organization of mostly autonomous businesses, which was kind of a little bit like what they were doing. I mean, he did allow for certain autonomy between the brands, but I think what Sloan wanted was more of a sense of corporate unity, so that the right hand always knew what the left was doing, which a plan of federal decentralization wouldn't really allow for. He wanted GM to be part of a vast automotive continuum, since this is how they got to the top spot to begin with, and why wouldn't it keep working? But then, Sloan had other issues with how he ran his business, as his accounting methods obviously weren't the greatest, considering his issues with the government, you know, the stuff we already talked about. Never minding the tax foibles, Sloan had essentially kept a structure that placed inventory on the same pedestal as cash, which is kind of crazy. I mean, okay, it doesn't sound that crazy in theory, except if you have a surplus of cash, then great! A surplus of inventory? Not so much. Especially if you're not moving that inventory. But in Sloan's view, it was better than the previous method of restricting the buildup of inventory to prevent filling lots with unsold cars. Because in cases where people actually want to buy your cars, supply can't fulfill demand. Still, as GM entered the post-war years, it made less sense for an accounting system that privileged slow turnover on inventory, because no matter which way you sliced it, inventory did not equal cash in hand. Now, for his part, Sloan tried to keep all his scandals and shortcomings in the past, such as the Great American Streetcar Scandal, in which public trams were replaced by buses, a scandal which was blamed on Sloan but resulted in only $5,000 in fines for antitrust violations, in addition to a fine of $1 for each convicted executive. There was also the accusation that GM collaborated with the Nazis during Hitler's rise to power. Albert Speer, otherwise known as Nazi Germany's Minister of Armaments and War Production, claimed that Germany could never have achieved its 1939 invasion of Poland without the technology provided through their collaboration with Sloan and GM. In this latter scandal, Sloan defended himself rigorously by claiming that the GM Opel plant that produced bombers, landmines, trucks, and other instruments of war for the Nazis had been nationalized. 
and that GM essentially had no involvement or contact with Opal for the duration of the war. Granted, this does nothing to change that Sloan had defended the partnership to shareholders in 1939 as a profitable relationship founded on sound business practices. Ultimately, things worked out for GM in the post-war years. They introduced a streamliner fastback sedan as the first post-war Pontiac in 1946, and in an attempt to appeal to a wider demographic, Pontiac would eventually offer smaller, hydromatic-equipped models before the 40s came to a close. It was gradually becoming time for Pontiac to move in a bolder direction. For all that Sloan did in getting the company rolling into the mid-20th century, He's far from the only executive with a clear eye for what Pontiac should be. Or rather, what it could be. Bunky Knudsen, the GM exec who took over as general manager in 1955, became one of Pontiac's key figureheads in the mid-20th century. While Pontiac was enjoying fruitful business, there was interbrand competition, with Pontiac suffering by comparison to the less expensive Chevrolet models and losing out on pricier business to the slightly more upscale Oldsmobile. Chevrolet introduced a lightweight V8, so Pontiac introduced one of their own, hoping to appeal to a different, more enthusiast crowd. You know, the bros of the 1950s, with their leather jackets and their cigarettes held limply between their lips as the embers fell from the tip and dissipated in the dying throes of amber light, their knuckles rough from labor and youthful aggression, and their hair styled with pomade thicker than your aunt's denial over her son's sexual preferences. Wait, where was I? Oh yeah, Pontiac's 1955 offerings. You see, they carried a more ostentatious look than previous efforts, so that while they couldn't appeal to those in search of a luxury experience, nor those simply looking for something modest, they could at least try and strike that sweet, sweet middle ground. Truly the Tootsie Roll pop of automotive brands, except it probably takes way more licks to get to the center of a firebird. Now, Bunky was taking over as general manager in a position his father once held during the 1930s. They were big shoes to fill, since his father was not only a successful businessman as former president of the Chevrolet division, and later General Motors itself, but also as a three-star general in the United States Army. William S. Knudsen was a GM legend, and his son planned on living up to the mantle. It was Bunky's relative youth at the time that put Pontiac on a focus towards performance rather than faux luxury and everyman accessibility. It was a restructuring of the Pontiac identity. This was going to become a niche brand for people who liked driving. No, for people who loved driving. Actually, no, people who needed to drive. Because the 1950s brought us a wider proliferation of car culture and people who loved driving for its own sake rather than for pragmatic purposes. Although you could argue that joy is pragmatic, in its own sort of way. At around this same period, in 1956, John DeLorean joined GM as the Director of Advanced Engineering for Pontiac. Suddenly, the brand went from the sole purview of older men to a more youthful oversight. 
TriPower carburation was implemented with the TriPower 389 landing in 1959. Suddenly, Pontiac went from a brand that was doing a great job of just getting by to a brand you might actually seek out specifically for what they provided. And now I think it's time to really get into the cars. I mean, I've talked enough about the people, and if I haven't, I'm sorry, but I feel like we really need to get into Pontiac proper, and I would be remiss if I didn't start in earnest with the rise of the Pontiac Bonneville. The car was created as a fuel-injected luxury performance convertible version of the 1957 Pontiac Star Chief, before being spun off into its own model, as would be the case for some of Pontiac's most iconic offerings. After becoming its own mark in 1958, the Bonneville took a proud spot in the public eye as a pace car at that year's Indy 500, which is very much on brand for a car that supposedly earned its name from the Bonneville Salt Flats in Utah, where legends like Mickey Thompson and countless others sought the glory of land speed records. And this is where I do another plug and say check out the RCR stories on Mickey Thompson. It's five parts, but I promise it's good. Now, when the Bonneville was first offered as its own mark in 1958, it was only offered in a two-door model, with convertible and hardtop variants. However, by 1959, the options were extended to two-door, four-door, and station wagon varieties, with a standard 370 cubic inch four-barrel carburetor and dual exhaust, and the option for the fuel-injected 370 cubic inch Tempest engine that bumped horsepower up to 310 over the 255 horsepower of the standard engine. The fuel-injected model was a real peach, and made these first-year Bonnevilles extremely collectible. Why? Well, it's because the tri-power option was $400 cheaper than the fuel-injected version, and so it sold better. And thus, Pontiac didn't really see the need to build more than a couple hundred of those fuel-injected V8s. Not that any of this prevented the Bonneville from becoming beefier into the 1960s, with 1963 giving you engine choices that included a Super Duty 389 Tri-Power V8, a 400 cubic inch V8, or an erection-fattening 421 Super Duty V8, making nearly 400 horsepower. Of course, the Bonneville is also significant for its introduction of a new logo for Pontiac, the iconic red arrowhead emblem, also known as the Dart replacing the Native American headdress logo Pontiac held from its debut until 1956. It was a small but important change as Pontiac's reach spread, particularly with the release of the Bonneville. Their offerings were becoming more and more prevalent as the 50s came to a close, and by 1959, the Bonneville had earned its place as one of the top-line entries into the Pontiac fleet with its split grille and wide track configuration, in addition to further body styles that included convertible, two-door coupe, four-door sedan, four-door station wagon, and four-door hardtop models. So why not inaugurate the whole launch of this vehicle with a new logo to just say, hey, we're Pontiac, we're here, we're young, we're vibrant, we're new, and we're taking things in a different direction and come take this ride with us. But let's back up real quick, because we need to talk about that wide-track configuration. You see, Bunky Knutson made the call to widen the tracks of 1959 Pontiacs in order to give the cars a more commanding stance and better cornering ability than other models in its class, which was a fine idea because the compact Pontiacs of the early 60s helped add to the surprising variety of Pontiac's fleet. 
small, sleek compacts alongside mid-sized vehicles and land yachts. Pontiac was really going for that multi-demographic appeal. I'm talking stuff like the Pontiac Tempest, which was one of those BOP models, you know, Buick Oldsmobile Pontiac. And it was an entry-level compact sport coupe with GM's first unibody Y platform, 50-50 weight distribution thanks to the rear-mounted transaxle, and front-mounted trophy four-cylinder engine. The Tempest even got a Le Mans trim level, because John DeLorean designed this thing to be more than just a compact sport coupe. And really, in a post-war era where baby boomers were reaching driving age, Pontiac's offerings were just plain cool. Now, by November 1961, Bunky Knutson had moved over to the Chevrolet division, leaving Pete Estes to become the new general manager of Pontiac, while John DeLorean was named chief engineer. They generally shared Knutson's vision of Pontiac as a more performance-oriented brand, and so they relegated the Pontiac Ventura to a trim option on the full-size Catalina from the same era, replacing the former with the new Grand Prix, which shared visual components with the rest of the fleet, like vertical headlights, for example, while also being differentiated by such styling choices as less chrome and adding concave rear windows. Around this time, Pontiac was aiming to offer larger engine options to give the fleet a sense of muscularity, even as the fleet was gradually being moved over to GM's A platform, as was the case for the base Tempest and the Le Mans. But if I'm giving these other cars the short shrift, it's because the changes made were merely appetizers on the road to muscle car immortality, with Pontiac debatably setting off the trend with three little letters. G. T-O. It all started with an executive from the McManus Advertising Agency by the name of Jim Wangers, who loved cars more than newlyweds love fixed-rate mortgages. At the time, GM had placed a ban on auto racing across all of its divisions, and in response, Wangers was fixated on finding a way for Pontiac to keep the performance identity it had taken such great pains to build in the previous decade, while still somehow adhering to this new rule. So his idea was to focus on street performance rather than track capability, something street legal for the open road that could give your average Joe the thrill of a track without membership dues. But he didn't know how to really skirt GM's rule against, you know, engine sizes being only of a certain displacement. And so the plan obviously required the input of Chief Engineer John DeLorean, along with fellow General Motors colleague, the aptly named Shane Weiser, to take the Pontiac Tempest, which was already on track to be modified to a front-engine rear-wheel drive layout, and give it a 389 cubic inch, or 6.4 liter, Pontiac V8, shared by the full-size Bonneville and the Pontiac Catalina. So with the plan in place, John DeLorean worked with fellow engineers Bill Collins and Russ Gee to create a car that essentially was a giant middle finger to GM's new A-body policy that restricted engine displacement to no higher than 330 cubic inches. They got around this by making the GTO an option for the 1964 Pontiac Tempest, since the restriction didn't apply to options. Although saying this is driving me crazy because I looked online everywhere I could and I continually found conflicting reports of the GTO starting out as an option on the Le Mans and not the Tempest. 
I swear, for every three articles I found on the history of the GTO starting out on the Tempest, I found one talking about its beginnings on the Le Mans, and vice versa, it's weird, and I think both are true in a sense. Let me try to talk this out, and please accept my apologies if I'm as catastrophically wrong as I expect to be. But the Le Mans was initially a version of the Tempest when it was introduced at the end of the 1961 model year. It was basically a trim package for the Tempest in its first two years before becoming its own model for the 1963 model year. But for the 1964 model year, it was relegated back to a trim upgrade on the Tempest. So I think that's where the confusion comes from. Even if it was a Le Mans, it was still technically a Tempest. And that's the story I'm sticking to. Now, in 1963, the best you could hope for with the Tempest was the 326 cubic inch V8. But the GTO option offered a 389 cubic inch V8, complete with dual exhaust, improved handling, and GTO badging. The 6.4 liter V8 of the new creation, in comparison to the 323 cubic inch or 5.3 liter V8 of the standard Tempest, allowed Pontiac to cling to the thread of its affordable high-performance reputation. Standing for Gran Turismo Omologato, the GTO made 325 brake horsepower at 4,800 RPM and came standard with Carter AFB 4-barrel carburation, dual exhaust pipes, 3-speed manual transmission, redline tires, and springs stiffer than a bag of McDonald's french fries 7 minutes after serving. The GTO had created a buzz and arguably kicked off the muscle car craze, but could it actually prove to be a flagship vehicle for Pontiac? Well, despite Pete Estes being fairly confident in the GTO's potential for success and critical renown, sales manager Frank Bridge was less convinced, urging Estes to keep production under 5,000 units for its first run. After all, Pontiac was doing well in the 60s. Why mess with a good thing? Apple carts are so easily upset. So why risk it at all? But even before release, the GTO showed strong dealer orders. Even though it was a car that was a big gamble, there were concerns about alienating their older clientele, overlooking the possibilities presented by appealing to a younger demographic. It'd be like CBS deciding to air a teen drama. Old people aren't going to get it, and old people are your bread and butter, so what's the point in trying? But then you go and make the CW anyway, because you got to appeal to young people somehow, right? And yes, I know, cars are an altogether different animal from the world of television. But it operates along the same principles of profitability. So Bridges' reluctance was kind of understandable, but in spite of his reluctance, he did give his blessing to management, and Estes approved the GTO. And by the end of that initial run... He was validated in his decision to do so, as sales reached 32,450 units in 1964 alone. And the numbers would only climb from there as GTO fever swept the nation, with ancillary products from GTO cologne to GTO driving shoes being sold in stores nationwide. The GTO even had a hit novelty song, as the platinum-selling Little GTO by Ronnie and the Daytons reached as high as number four on the Billboard Pop Singles chart. The Tempest sold for less than $3,000 new, and the GTO option went for less than $300 more. The GTO was here to play dual roles, as your gateway Pontiac, and as your apex Pontiac, as part of a revolution towards muscle. By 1966, 
The trim level had proven so popular that the decision was made to offer the GTO as its own model, resulting in its most successful model year ever, selling 96,946 units. With the GTO firmly entrenched in American pop culture, Pontiac could focus on other vehicles to further boost their profile in the late 60s and early 70s. To this end, the Pontiac Grand Prix had an impressive reputation in its own right. In particular, the 1969 Grand Prix was arguably Pontiac's best-looking car for that period, particularly for the mid-sized, mid-luxury market. While it was a GTO underneath its longer hood, that hood itself drew to mind the types of big cars that were gradually going out of style, tapping into a burgeoning nostalgia for the immediate post-war era. The design was made at the direction of then-general manager John DeLorean, who wanted the Grand Prix redesigned for 69, stretching out GM's A-platform to create what would come to be known as the G-Body. But for now, the Grand Prix was simultaneously important but also a middle ground between eras of Pontiac, a performance-focused Ventura that became a more opulent Catalina to hold the luxury car line. Pontiac wanted to keep its bases covered, to have variety for multiple demographics. But at the end of the day, Pontiac was at its best when focused on performance. And as they came into the 70s, Pontiac couldn't play the middle if they wanted to have the success of their rivals. In short... It was time to bring the fire. Now, part of the impetus behind the Grand Prix redesign was that the first generation was hit with declining sales, perhaps due in large part to luxury cars going out of vogue with the general market. So the idea was to trim it down a bit, lengthen the hood, and offer performance and handling where luxury wouldn't suffice. Hence why the car shares similarities with the GTO under the hood. In a downturn in business, you go back to what works. And the GTO was very much riding a high for Pontiac. In fact, it seemed that while other companies were shrinking their fleet in response to the Arab oil crisis, Pontiac was kind of getting beefier. Case in point, the Pontiac Firebird. Now, when the Firebird entered the fray, it may not have seemed all that different from others in its class. After all, GM had already entered the pony car market with the Chevy Camaro. But the Firebird went for a more rugged, streamlined aesthetic. It's basically the car John DeLorean was allowed to make after GM rejected his proposal to produce the Banshee concept car, since the higher-ups feared it would screw with Corvette sales. You know, they, they, it's just... Nah. So this was their compromise, and although the Firebird utilized the Camaro chassis and, like the Camaro, offered six- and eight-cylinder engine options, this sort of platform sharing wasn't exclusive to GM. The February 23, 1967 release of the Firebird coincided with the debut of the 1967 Mercury Cougar, which shared a platform with the Mustang, with integrated front bumpers, rear-slit taillights, and that Coke bottle styling Pontiac loved so much, the Firebird had a sleek look with a hint of aggression to it. Available in two-door convertible and two-door hardtop versions, the first-gen Firebird engine options included a 3.8-liter V6 making 220 horsepower, a 6.6-liter V8 serving up to 340 horsepower, and a 400 V8 Ram Air making 325 brake horsepower at 5200 RPM. It was cool, but not as cool as its eventual upgrade in the form of the Trans Am, 
which was added to the Firebird as a specialty package for its second generation, improving everything from suspension to horsepower to handling. The Trans Am was named after the racing series of the same name, and Pontiac paid a $5 royalty to the Sports Car Club of America for each model sold, in exchange for the rights to use the Trans Am name. This would prove to be a fairly lucrative deal, as the Trans Am was the apex firebird in a lot of ways. With its anti-sway bars, 335-horsepower Ram Air 3, or the optional 400-horsepower Ram Air 4, and a lowered suspension with big-ass tires. It fit in well with what was known as GM's Excitement Division, because that's what Pontiac was looking to offer. But also innovation, because in 1971, it was the second-gen Firebird that had the privilege of being the first to offer Pontiac's new 455-cubic-inch engine, which helped give the car an increase in power and in profile. If you were an enthusiast who somehow hadn't heard of the bird, then this would be about the time you'd start to hear the word. By 1973, the 455 got a Super Duty, or SD455 variant, which achieved the type of power and performance that was promised in the name Trans Am, even as the first Arab oil crisis meant a bigger emphasis on fuel efficiency and less of an emphasis on performance. As a result, by its very nature, the SD-455 wasn't going to stick around long. But then, it didn't have to. It just needed to be the doorway for people to get into Trans Ams. Under that iconic shaker scoop were aluminum pistons, huge valves, and exhaust manifolds, a redesigned camshaft and reinforced block, joining together like the rings that summon Captain Planet, all in service of getting you a 310 horsepower rating that was probably closer to 360 or 370. The car basically did its job of bringing people into the Pontiac fold long enough to see the Firebird through to its most successful years. But back to the cool factor for a bit, as it's hard to talk about the Firebird without getting into its unique aesthetic, as one of the most recognizable aspects of the Firebird was, well, the bird itself. Yes, the classic screaming chicken hood decal, because this was one of those rare cases where what was on top of the hood was as significant as what was under it, which I can't remember ever being the case outside of, say, Tawny Katane in White Snake's Here I Go Again video. To shorten what's already an absurdly long story, GM graphics artist Norm Inoue worked with designer Bill Mitchell to come up with a decal based off of a napkin sketch by GM chief designer Bill Porter. Because it's just bills all the way down, people. In journalist Gary Witzenberg's 1982 book, Firebird, America's Premier Performance Car, decent title, Porter would recall... The original idea for the bird decal was done in my studio on a proposed 1971 show Trans Am in blue and white, but Mitchell saw it in our paint shop and hated it. He told me to get it off the car. It looks like something on a Macy's truck, he said. Why did I give him a transatlantic accent? Yeah. So Inoue had the idea to flip the bird's wings so that they were raised overhead. It gave the look of wings made of flame, which, if nothing else, fit the name of the car. When designer John Scanella took over from Porter and faced the task of redesigning the Firebird for 73, he went back to the Screaming Chicken design and took a production Firebird with a decal on the hood and simply drove around town. In Scanella's own words, in Witzenberg's book, 
We took it out to a few gas stations and drive-ins and the people went berserk. I mean, absolutely came unglued. They couldn't believe it and they loved it. Where do you get that? Where can I get one? It attracted so much attention it was almost like you were walking down the street with no clothes on. Okay, why did I give him a Yonkers accent? That's weird. And a bad one, too. Yeah. Eventually, Pontiac General Manager Jim McDonald got on board with the design on the notion that they didn't really have anything to lose by making it an option. If people liked it, then great. If not, hey, it was optional. And if nothing else, it set it apart from the Camaro, which was already giving the Firebird in-house competition. Over the 1970s, sales of the Firebird Trans Am grew, and its place in pop culture began to take hold. Sure, it still shared the Camaro's F-body platform, but what it lacked in its own fully formed individuality, it more than made up for in zeitgeist appeal, as it became the quintessential 70s car. Again, debatable. Whatever. But I mean, come on, it appeared in Smokey and the Bandit. It's hard to think of a Firebird from that period without thinking about that movie. It just looks like Burt Reynolds, for crying out loud. By 1980, the Trans Am was the official pace car for the Indy 500, and by the time it was featured in Knight Rider as Kit, the Knight Industries 2000 car, its place in automotive pop culture history had already been solidified. This was just placing a rubber stamp on a legend. Now, the good news was that Pontiac was flying high in sales, with 850,000 units sold across their fleet. This is thanks at least in part to the aforementioned Firebird, although the company had high hopes for the Pontiac Fiero, their first mid-engine two-seat production car, which got more props for looking cool than for actually being fun to drive in its early years. And it's kind of a shame that the Fiero got overlooked during this period, because it was a car with loads of potential that only realized that potential too late. You see, General Motors saw value in a sporty daily driver that they didn't have to worry about competing with the Corvette. So the Fiero utilized a reworked version of the GM 2.5-liter Iron Duke inline-four, which offered better fuel efficiency and just enough oomph to feel competitive with other cars in its class. But for something sporty, it really wasn't as zippy as some consumers were probably expecting upon release in 1983 for the 1984 model year. But then, the Iron Duke was targeted towards running at low RPMs rather than revving high. It was geared towards fuel efficiency in ways the Corvette V8 just wasn't. You also have to factor in that a lot of the parts used for the Fiero were borrowed from GM economy cars of the period, whether brakes, suspension, or tires. It was a car that simply got off on the wrong foot by being too much of a hodgepodge collection of other cars. Sure, it looked cool, at least I think so, but the appearance wrote a check that the car itself, in its original form, couldn't cash. It wasn't until the second oil crisis of the late 70s was far, far in the rearview mirror that Pontiac started beefing up the Fiero, with models such as the GT, which offered a souped-up V6 that got over 40 horsepower above the base model, along with bigger tires and a retuned suspension. Later, Pontiac re-added the two-piece brake calipers and improved brake rotors to the suspension, which had to be removed from the first-year model due to cost concerns. By the time the GT came out in 1985, with subsequent improvements made in the years that followed, it felt as though Pontiac had finally gotten it right. 
they'd finally distilled the essence of a sporty daily driver into a car that could still provide an element of danger and excitement to match its style. But by the late 1980s, the Fiero had spent so much time suffering under the weight of unmet expectations and small but noteworthy recalls over everything from engine fires to coolant-related air bubbles in the radiator that sales declined significantly in its final years, even as it finally delivered on the promise of its mid-engine layout and suspension upgrades, and became the fun, youthful car it should have had the chance to be from the start. The media was never particularly crazy about the car either, and the lack of enthusiasm was reflected among consumers. Not that Fierro's didn't go on to have a pretty big cult following. In the 1980s, Pontiac was actually in the top three among American domestic car manufacturers. But this was pretty much the apex. It would be a slow slide, but it was all downhill from here. Now, Pontiac was far from a one-hit wonder. If anything, they had an entire fleet of moneymakers that carried them through the golden 60s, past that Arab oil embargo of the 70s, and into the greed-is-good era of the 1980s. And there was really no reason to believe that Pontiac would decline in the manner in which it inevitably did. But here we are anyway, some 30 years later, looking into what happened and why. So, what happened? And why? The age of the Jeep was upon us. The minivan was riding a wave of popularity. Imports remained as popular as ever, and the family station wagon was, well, I mean, it was everywhere. So where did Pontiac fit in all of this? Well, the 90s brought a more sporty Firebird, or at least an attempt at one along with a redesigned Grand Am, to reach out to the people they'd lost to foreign automakers in the 1980s. The Bonneville was softened in its appearance, although the SSEI supercharger gave it an extra bit of allure that the base model was lacking. But for all its attempts to go back to what worked in the past, Pontiac didn't reap much in the way of rewards for their efforts. And I think a lot of it goes back to that old GM approach better known as badge engineering. I talked about it a bit earlier, but it only became more pronounced in this era. I mean, the Sunbird was a Cavalier. The Firebird was a Camaro. Even down to specific years, models shared an aching lack of distinction, with cars like the 88 Grand Am sedan looking like a 5th gen Buick Century of the same body style. What happened to the visual flair that set Pontiac apart? The maverick, rebellious style that kept the brand in the conversation? But there were also larger issues related to the fleet itself, and the relative lack of excitement generated by GM's so-called excitement division. And you know what? Look, I get it. I get where GM was coming from, with the idea of remaking the same cars for different price segments. But what you ended up with was reskinned versions of the same car, so that the entire fleet across all of GM felt recursive. It, th that feeling of automotive deja vu. And the Pontiac Sunfire was pretty much the apotheosis of this nonsense. Because who really needed a mock-sporty, front-wheel-drive car with all the flair of a supermarket produce aisle? At least the produce aisle has cantaloupe and apples and sources of much-needed roughage. But was anybody getting hyped over the Pontiac Sunfire? Even in 1995, with our blind melon cassette tapes and our Zubaz pants with 
fanny packs, frosted tips and puka shell necklaces, and pockets filled to bursting with double-A batteries because God forbid our Walkman dies on our walk to the mall. For some reason, Pontiac wanted to take another stab at the Sunbird, and replaced it with the Sunfire for 1995, this time reincarnating as a Chevy Cavalier, riding on an updated J platform, except the Sunbirds could at least say they looked cool for the first two generations. Yet, no matter how many facelifts this Sunfire got, it could never get past the plastic cladding, the cheap-looking interior and a ride quality that was nowhere up to the standard of Pontiac's former reputation. But the problem with badge engineering continued past the 90s, as the Pontiac Solstice tried to fill the quirky little sports car segment that the Fiero had once occupied, only for GM to create the Saturn Sky, a badge-engineered model that did nothing to help Pontiac struggle to cement a new identity inside the old one. Instead of being a stylish, muscular division focused towards performance and uniqueness, Pontiac had somehow looped back around to being the budget alternative it had been nearly a century prior. This was a period where Pontiac really began to feel the pressure of negative press over build quality. For instance, the 5th Gen Grand Am faced concerns over its electronics and brakes, along with a generally poor side safety rating, as well as the sudden trend of making formerly standard features now optional on the SE models, beginning in 2003. Anti-lock brakes? Optional. Traction control? Optional. Lower body side cladding? Gone altogether which honestly was probably for the best, considering the cladding had a hard time actually staying in place on some units. There were also recalls for the 5th gen model over rear suspension knuckle bolts that could fracture under high loads, and an insufficient weld on fuel tanks that could result in leaks. By 2005, the sedan model was pulled altogether. And yet, in discussing Pontiac's decline, we really gotta talk about the Aztec. And yeah, I know, we already reviewed it, but we gotta do it more. You see, in a sense, the intentions behind it were noble. Why not make an SUV with available all-wheel drive, plenty of cargo space, and roomy seating? Why not make an SUV with the athleticism and fuel economy of a smaller car? And why not make it affordable? I mean, I get it, the heart was in the right place as it could, by turn, appeal to both the young and adventurous types and the older consumers looking for the option of adventure as an oasis within the desert of family life. But the Aztec faced the issue of design by committee. You see, the Aztec was matched to the GM minivan platform, which meant it made use of a four-speed automatic transmission, electronic all-wheel drive inside of an aluminum subframe, and 3.4-liter V6. It was meant to convey the notion of adventure, but instead gave off an air of domesticity, of missed opportunities, and the idea that maybe you'll get around to taking that trip out into nature someday, but we both know what the answer to that is. In a way, it was kind of a depressing car, but the function wasn't even the issue people seemed to have with the Aztec. No, it was the design. Guided by Tom Peters, the head of exterior design at General Motors, the Aztec was an attempt at harking back to the risk-taking era at Pontiac. As Peters would note in an article with Business Week, we wanted to do a bold, in-your-face vehicle that wasn't for everybody. 
and it's easy to appreciate the idea behind it. Sometimes you have to do something you think people might not like in order to find out what it is they really want. However, that Business Week article didn't exactly paint the Aztec in the gentlest light, with various other periodicals damning the design, noting that many dealers had a hard time trying to find the words to describe the vehicle, resigning themselves to the reality that it was a car people would either love or hate with basically no room for middle ground. The SUV was described as gut-wrenching to look at by Automobile Magazine, while Auto Pacific's James Hall compared its style to six-week-old cottage cheese. A reader poll by the Daily Telegraph would eventually rank it as one of the 100 ugliest cars ever made, or to be more accurate, the ugliest car ever made. Yes, in a top 10 that included the PT Cruiser, the Austin Ambassador, the Hummer, the Ford Scorpio, the AMC Pacer, the Porsche Cayenne, the Austin Allegro, the Sangyong Rodius, and the Fiat Multipla, the Pontiac Aztec topped them all. In the 2008 article, the Telegraph tore the Aztec to shreds, claiming it as proof that Americans do ugly better than anyone else and declaring the crossover a cost-cutting committee's attempt to please as many people as possible. And on this point, one would be inclined to agree. Sure, the extreme concept of the Aztec was received favorably, with the versatility of a daily driver matched to an all-terrain, go-anywhere off-roader. Hell, it was even promoted as, quote, quite possibly the most versatile vehicle on the planet, end quote. But Pontiac lost the thread somewhere between concept and production, and after a year on the market, the Hyundai Santa Fe was outselling the Aztec by 5 to 1, according to Business Week. No matter how extreme the concept version was, the production version never lived up to the hype. Suffering from Pontiac's fixation with plastic cladding, it just wasn't as cool as the type of car someone in their 20s would want, and it wasn't nearly as pragmatic as something a family-oriented person in their 30s might buy, since there were plenty of other options on the market. But then, appearances wouldn't have mattered at all if the thing had actually sold. GM expected something roughly in the ballpark of 75,000 Aztecs to sell each year with a break-even point of 30,000 units. However, in 2001, they sold just 27,322, falling just shy of their break-even. By 2005, the Aztec was put out to pasture, and no amount of Walter White visibility would bring it back from the dead, in anywhere other than enthusiast and cult circles. Now, Pontiac was really starting to feel the heat. Sure, the Pontiac vibe somehow managed to stick around from 2002 to 2010, but you could argue that the vibe stuck around for as long as it did due to Toyota, with whom GM jointly created the car. In the mid to late 2000s, Pontiac was in a desperate period of reinvention, such as replacing the Sunfire with the Pontiac G5, swapping out the Grand Am for the G6, and putting the Bonneville out to pasture for good in 2006. The Pontiac Torrent was brought in to wash away the bad taste the Aztec left behind among consumers and critics alike, though it hardly fared any better because it's basically just a reskinned Chevy Equinox. 
we got the previously mentioned Pontiac Solstice, the front-engine rear-wheel drive sports car that came too little too late, and along those same lines was the Pontiac G8, which itself was a rebadged Holden Commodore that quickly managed to build up a reputation as an authentic driver's car, with the GXP version offering an LS3 V8 making 415 horsepower and 415 torque, making it one of the most powerful production models Pontiac ever offered. But again, it was late to the party. Fleet sales were worse than they'd ever been, and none of the old tricks were working anymore. Whether it was the badge engineering to save on production costs, or going back to the performance well. The economy was in a bad state in general, and the automotive industry was cratering like it never had before. Leading to bailouts, cash for clunkers, and the rot of manifest need to rescue American industry from ruin. So what happened? The same thing that typically happens when the American auto industry is in dire straits. A knock on Uncle Sam's door. By December 2nd, 2008, GM was facing tough decisions. You see, they needed $25 billion in loans from the government, but they weren't going to get a dime if they didn't cut down on the number of brands. The reasoning from the government was that GM didn't need so many different brands cutting into their own bottom line and reducing the likelihood of profitability. They had already phased Oldsmobile out of existence over a gradual period from 2000 to 2004. But that wasn't enough. They had to cut deeper if they wanted to secure those loans. And yet, out of the brands GM offered to sacrifice at the altar of Congress, the first wasn't Pontiac. It was Saturn. On February 17th, 2009, GM offered to get rid of Saturn and sell off their Saab and Hummer divisions. The rationale behind keeping Pontiac at the time was to transform the brand into their youthful and sporty division, which would help round out and diversify the GM fleet. And it would cost less to manufacture new Pontiacs, not because of badge engineering and other cost-cutting measures, but because of the plan to potentially keep as many as four models for the brand, and as few as just one. So Pontiac would still be around, they'd just be making fewer of them. The amount of faith GM seemed to have in Pontiac was in no way reflected in the amount of cars they were actually selling. And yet, one of the first things they teach you when you're learning about writing, a practice that probably could have helped make this RCR story a whole hell of a lot shorter than it has been, is to kill your darlings. Even if you think something works, it doesn't necessarily mean it's what's good for the product as a whole. Even if GM had wanted to keep Pontiac, it no longer made sense to, since even their successes were only modest at best. This isn't to say it wasn't tough all over for the auto industry in 2009, but, I mean, these guys were facing actual bankruptcy due to slow sales and losses. And if you're going to go to Uncle Sam for help, you'd better come correct. And so it came down to either eliminating Pontiac or GMC. Or Pontiac and GMC. Regardless, GM had a decision to make, and they conducted a study to try and parse out what, exactly, they should do to save their company. Whatever would allow them to retain the highest profit potential and accrue the least amount of backlash. And so GM ultimately decided they would keep their GM truck line because fleet vehicles and America, while getting rid of Pontiac altogether. 
This was first revealed in a report dated April 23rd, 2009, with GMC joining the other survivors of the GM lineup, Chevrolet, Cadillac, and Buick. On April 27th, 2009, GM officially announced the death of Pontiac, with plans to phase out production by year-end 2010. The decision led to the loss of over 7,000 jobs in the United States. Naturally, there was backlash over the elimination of Pontiac. Less over the lost jobs and more over the notion that it should have been Buick that was sacrificed instead. In particular, Pontiac dealer Robert E. Cherney expressed his disappointment in an October 19, 2009 letter to the editor of Automotive News, titled, Why Kill Pontiac? Why Keep Buick? Straightforward title, I like it. Cherney wrote, To the editor, I'm writing as a former Pontiac dealer of 32 years who is concerned with the lack of questioning about the demise of the brand. After the big push for Project 2000 to put Buick, Pontiac, and GMC under one roof, one would think that would have more or less solved the duplication of products. To kill Pontiac now seems senseless. Keeping Buick now also is senseless from an outsider's view. Buick's nine-month U.S. sales of 72,389 units compare with Pontiac's sales of 151,818 units. No one is even taking into consideration the demographics of the buyers of both brands. I wonder how much influence Washington's car czars with no automotive background have had on this decision. I feel it's a sad commentary that there's a lack of noise about this compared with the reaction when Oldsmobile went away. I hope this letter generates some reaction and gets a response from the new General Motors. Well, funnily enough, Cherney's letter did just that. Susan Doherty, the vice president of U.S. sales at General Motors, ultimately defended the decision to ditch Pontiac in a response letter dated October 26, 2009, challenging Cherney's rhetoric of characterizing it as a Pontiac versus Buick situation. After all, the two brands occupied completely different market segments, didn't they? Something had to go, and to Doherty, Pontiac was the clear, albeit painful, choice. The letter reads, Regarding Robert E. Cherney's October 19th letter, Why Kill Pontiac? Why Keep Buick? I'd like to assure your readers that phasing out Pontiac was one of the most difficult decisions of my career, but also one of the most necessary. Pontiac had been unprofitable for several years. A team, many of whom were passionate about the brand, tried in vain to save Pontiac and make it profitable. But none of the scenarios proved viable. We kept Buick in the General Motors family because it is highly profitable and will grow with new models over the next few years, giving Buick an offering in several sedan and crossover segments. The Enclave is already a market success, with 50% of the buyers brand new to Buick. The 2010 LaCrosse is performing well, attracting younger buyers and those who are trading in imports like Lexus and Acura. And the 2011 Regal, a mid-sized sports sedan, arrives in U.S. dealerships in the spring. And the Regal is already a hot seller in China and is based on the highly successful Opel Insignia, the 2009 European Car of the Year. A little further down the road, there will be a compact sedan and a small crossover joining the family. We feel confident that we chose to save the right brand, and that Buick has a bright future ahead of it. 
So yeah, it basically read like ad copy. But I think the key factor in Doherty's letter here is Buick's success in the Chinese market. They were selling hotter overseas than they were in America, but it would be naive to think that phasing out the brand in the U.S. wouldn't put a dent in its worldwide reputation, especially for a more luxury-oriented vehicle brand, where the name of the game is status, or at least the appearance thereof. Buick's had a consumer loyalty that Pontiac just didn't at the time, perhaps due to the amount of infighting among people who loved Pontiacs, strangely enough. I mean, you had purists claiming that anything made after the second oil crisis in 1979 wasn't a real Pontiac because it didn't have an authentic Pontiac engine. It was all 80s badge-engineered garbage that was missing the bohemian free spirit of those early GTOs and Firebirds and all that. But in a way, you could argue that that sort of gatekeeping led to Pontiac's death, because the gatekeepers weren't actually supporting the brand in a way that mattered to Pontiac's bottom line. And from their perspective, why would they? Those people who fell in love with those 60s and 70s models probably weren't going to spring for a G6 or a G8, even if the GXP trim level showed promise among enthusiasts. But maybe that's an oversimplification. In fact, research suggests there was more to it, as former GM vice chairman and automotive legend Bob Lutz revealed in a Q&A at the Peterson Automotive Museum on October 26, 2013. Lutz responded to a question concerning Pontiac's demise, and much like in Cherney's letter, it was presented as a question of why Pontiac and not Buick. As it would turn out, Lutz's answer would suggest the government had a far bigger hand in targeting Pontiac for elimination specifically. The following is a transcript of Lutz's comments on the brand's demise. The feds basically wanted to get GM down to Cadillac and Chevrolet. They said, you don't need all these brands. You need one prestige brand and one mass market brand. And we said, well... We can't get rid of Buick because Buick is important in China. And if Buick becomes an orphan in the United States, then the Chinese are no longer going to be interested in it. And the Fed said, fair enough, but everything else goes. We said, well, we'd also like to keep GMC. They said, well, GMC is basically just like Chevrolet. And we said, that may be true. There may be a lot of shared components, but GMC is an entirely different image a different customer base, and people are willing to pay different prices for a GMC, and here's the profitability. And the Fed said, whoops, okay, keep GMC. So now we had Buick, GMC, Cadillac, and Chevrolet, and then I wanted, badly wanted, to keep Pontiac, because Pontiac was on its way back, and it had been mismanaged for a number of years, you know, with rebuild excitement and the excitement was only in the plastic body cladding. Mechanically, there was nothing about Pontiac in the 90s that would make your heart beat faster. And with the Solstice and Solstice Coupe, and with the Pontiac G8, which was a great car, we were embarked on a strategy of making Pontiac different from the rest of GM, in that Pontiac wouldn't get any front-wheel drive cars. They would all be rear-wheel drive, and the next G6 was going to use the architecture of the Cadillac ATS, 
It was going to be a three series sized rear wheel Pontiac with basically the Cadillac ATSD premiumized, obviously, a lot of the cost taken out, but still fundamentally that architecture. That was going to be the next G6, and I think we could have moved Pontiac away from every other American volume brand and really started positioning it as attractive U.S. alternative to some of the, and obviously at much lower prices than European rear-wheel drive cars. But the Fed said, yeah, let's just, how much money have you made on Pontiac in the last 10 years? And the answer was nothing. So it goes. And when the guy is handing you the check for $53 billion, says, I I don't want Pontiac, drop Pontiac or you don't get the money, it doesn't take you very long to make up your mind. But I think it's a shame. Pontiac was on its way back, and it was killed before before the plant could really sprout blossoms, you know? It was well on its way. So I agree with you. I think Pontiac was a great, wonderful history mismanaged for a number of years in the 80s and 90s, and it was clearly on its way back, and we were starting to see a very good customer base in solstices, and especially in the G8, which was favorably compared in a lot of road tests to the BMW 5 Series. People would say, dynamically, the car is as good, and it's more powerful, and way cheaper, but that was too bad. But you can't go through Chapter 11 without some really harmful effects. It was a sad story, but in an even sadder way, it made a certain kind of sense. Why Pontiac and not Buick? Well, Pontiacs just weren't getting it done among consumers anymore. Sometimes it really is just a game of numbers, of ones and zeros, and fat stacks of cash, and the hope that maybe tomorrow will be different. Tomorrow will be better. So with that, The sun set on Pontiac, and there was no going back. Or was there? The answer is no. No, there wasn't any going back. Although Michigan Pontiac dealer Jim Waldron expressed interest in purchasing the Pontiac brand. But by then, it had already been decided that Pontiac was being sent to the automotive junkyard in the sky. It was May 2009, and GM had decided that the brand just wasn't going to be for sale. It was just going to be shuttered completely. Never mind that Waldron had purportedly already secured financing to buy the brand and logos, and had even found financing to purchase GM plants for manufacturing. It just wasn't going to happen. GM just wanted it gone rather than sold. Or if you believe Bob Lutz, and I don't see any reason not to, the government wanted it gone. How else were they going to make those fat stacks and save their other, more profitable brands if there was competition, or potential competition? By the end of 2009, not only was Pontiac gone from the United States, it had been rebranded in Mexico as the Matiz, which basically means hue. Odd name, but for a brand with an odd fate, considering they only sold one vehicle, the Matiz G2. It was almost like a final indignity to what the Pontiac brand had once been, as the former excitement division of GM just couldn't excite consumers anymore. And so it was that in January 2010, in Orion Township, Michigan, at GM's Orion Township assembly line, the final Pontiac rolled out of the factory. It was a white 2010 model year G6. 
The four-door sedan was like a rolling epitaph for the brand. Here lies excitement. Press F to pay respects. In the grand scheme of things, the automotive industry was in a different place in 2009 than it had been at virtually any other period short of 1979, when Lee Iacocca petitioned the government for loans to save Chrysler. Basically, there was a trend towards more environmentally conscious vehicles along with affordability. It's how Cash for Clunkers managed to take hold as an idea in the way that it inevitably did. And last plug, but I did an entire RCR story on Cash for Clunkers that you can check out for more on how mindsets were shifting in the late 2000s, approaching the 2010s. But long story short, Cash for Clunkers was a disaster that took a lot of old gems off the road, including more than a few Firebirds, Fieros, and Trans Ams. In a sense, it made these sorts of cars more treasured than they already were among those who owned them and loved them and those who longed for and sought them. It's almost like a comment on the car community, writ large. People want what they don't have. But the only thing a car enthusiast values more than what they can't have is a car they once had, but lost. For better or worse, Pontiac excelled at creating a sense of longing. For what, exactly? Who knows? Maybe nothing. Maybe everything.